Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday Celebration from the Center for Spiritual Living in Huntsville, Alabama. We hope you feel the grace, the beauty, and the love of our community as you hear the message of the week. place that is already always there and we tend to forget it sometimes when we get distracted by the noise of the world or the beliefs in our mind the thoughts that we engage in and yet all the time there is that peace that lies stretched in smiling repose at the core of life and we touch that peace right now In Buddhism, they speak of emptiness as being empty of the local self. In other words, there is no me. There is only that. And so we come here to touch the source of our being. As Hazrat Anaya Khan says, we are the source, we are the journey, and we are the goal. And so this infinite presence journeys through all life and manifests as the outpicturing of itself everywhere. It was Einstein that says there is two kinds of people in this world, those who believe there are two and those who don't. And so if you're someone who believes there are two, that means there is me and you, there is other, there is separation. But if there is a part of you that recognizes that there's only one life, as Dr. Ernest Holmes said, that life is God's life. And that life is perfect in all of its multiple manifestations. And that is my life now. And so you have to be so humble to know that this creative something is revealing itself through each one of us as the expression of our soul. Our egoic self longs to impress the world with who we think we are, our titles, our labels, our acquisitions. But our soul, on the other hand, hmm is the part of us that was never born and never dies. It is that eternal aspect of who we have always been. And rather than to impress the world, the soul's goal is just to express, express itself. When it expresses itself through wisdom, through beauty, through creativity, through service, this is all the one life unfolding itself. And as it says in the Quran, am I not your Lord to which we the creation say, yes, we witness you. And so we witness this presence unveiling herself endlessly anew throughout creation. And we realize that we're looking at our own self. So I invite you to open your eyes, enter into this domain with me this Sunday morning.
and to, to invite a direct experience of truth. It was Oliver Wendell Holmes that said, <coughs> says the truth is incontrovertible. And it was the Greeks, the Greek word for truth is that which unhides itself. So what if the truth, and if you want the truth, and who was it that said, I think it was um, Ramana Maharshi, that says, you must want the truth as much, no, this was Rumi, you must want the truth as much as the drowning man wants that gasp of air. Well, what do you think that means, Sherry? To want the truth. And if the truth unhides itself, well, that means it was there all along. So could we seek the truth, even if the truth makes us uncomfortable? I shared with you that um, I had this breakthrough moment a week ago when I was exploring what I was going to teach in the month of December. And this little book literally came into my life because I was entertaining the idea of diving into the Emerson essays again. But they're so complex, and I've alienated more students by inviting Emerson into their lives. But this little book was called Living from the Soul, and it's the seven great teachings of Emerson. And it's only an 80-page book. And the way they start the book out, I talk about the truth unveiling itself. When Emerson, he was born in like 1809. His father died when he was seven years old. His mother had five sons. He was the third of five. And so she had a boarding house in Boston and she tried to make ends meet. In the meantime, Emerson went to Harvard, Harvard at age 14. He graduated at 19. He went to Harvard Divinity School, graduated from there when he was like 23. And he married the love of his life, Ellen Tucker. She was only 19 years old. And if you're a student of Emerson, he has the photograph of her on her desk, this beautiful young lady with the scarf around her neck. She died a year later of tuberculosis. He was the head of the first church in Boston, and his religion didn't sustain him through the loss of his young wife. And so he abandoned his career. He left the first church in Boston, and in his grief-stricken state, he went to Europe on the ships that they go over there, and he started journaling. And in that process of grieving, he realized that Ellen didn't die. He said that she's an angel in my soul, and his whole ministry was set on fire through a seeming accident, which wasn't an accident, because through her death, his soul awoke, and he began to change everything he said. And he wrote his essay called The Oversoul, and he says, there is a stream whose source is hidden, and from whence it comes I know not, but when it reveals itself, I am a pensioner, I draw from that. And so his whole ministry arose out of a death of someone who didn't die, who lived in him, and and this is about how to live from your soul, not from your ego. Now, in that little opening thing I did, if you're always wanting the world's approval, you're coming from your ego. Did you like me? Do you approve of me? But if you need to express something that's organically there, then you're coming from your soul. The soul wants to express its truth. So Emerson had these little truths. And I was sharing at the revealing service, John O'Donohue, this beautiful man that wrote his little book of blessings, which is what I'm speaking about this month is to bless the space that's between us. Because whenever you're in a blessing, when you bless something, it blesses you. That's how this law works. What you sow is what you're going to reap. So Emerson, in a way, went through a death and a rebirth. And he came back with a whole new way of thinking. John O'Donohue says, you know, so many of us live from the 10 sentences that shape our lives. And then something wakes up and those sentences aren't valid anymore. 
I was, I was thinking about that, and he says, so what if you would change the 10 sentences that rule your life, that shape your life? And I was thinking about mine, and I used, to, I used to think the thought, oh, I need to give them what they need from me as their minister. And then I woke up to the realization, no, I don't need to give them what they want from me. I need to give them what I have. Well, that's a whole different way of thinking about it, isn't it? You give them what they have, not what they want. I used to think things seem to be falling apart in our country. Well, then we had this kind of resurrection last week, and I'm beginning to think something new is giving birth on planet Earth, and we've been witnessing the growing pains of it. I was sharing in the revealing service, I saw this beautiful young woman from Missoula, Montana, who's a trans, and she saw that the legislation in Montana were writing these draconian laws to punish the LGBTQ community, and she says, I knew then that I have to run for office. And so she ran for the House of Representatives and she won the election. And she says, when people see us, they won't be afraid of us because we're a beautiful community. We're not, and they said, do you have any things that you would like to uh, pursue when you join the House of Representatives? And she said, I would like them to make it illegal to use conversion therapy on gay people. And I thought, I had tears coming down my eyes, because what I used to think was a country going to hell in a handbasket is that there's something that maybe something has to be so extreme in order for people to stand up and to be seen. I was living in San Francisco and Harvey Milk was there. For those of you who've seen the movie Milk, and he says, gay people will be accepted when gay people are willing to be seen by the world. Oh, by the way, I'm gay and I'm married. We have some couple visiting from Colorado. I don't think that they're going to stone me. Um, <laughs> I used to think that um, somebody hurt my feelings until I realized no one could hurt my feelings unless I give them permission to do it. I used to think that God maybe has abandoned me, but no, I don't think that way anymore. I think that if I don't feel God in my life, it's because I've abandoned God. God didn't go anywhere. We, we get distracted by the world we get lost in struggling with the outer. You know, there's that wonderful, there was one time in this center, Judy was here at the time, there was a dirty old man. He hit on all the women. You know, this is, this is what they don't teach you in ministerial school. And he, he, you know him, he flirted with the women and, and Susan knows him, he flirts with the women. And um, we had a social worker who said, I need to throw him out of the church because he's a, he's a predator. I said, you know, I don't throw people out of the churches. I don't. And so she called the board of trustees at the time and said that I wasn't fit to be the minister. And I'm a brand new minister, just came to Huntsville and, and I don't know what to do. And so I pulled out Parabola magazine looking for some inspiration. And they had a story of Jesus. And it says Jesus was preaching his gospel and he got tired and he told his uh, apostles, he said, I'm gonna take a nap, don't wake me up. And so he went out on the Sea of Galilee and he's in this thing sleeping and all of a sudden scripture says, and there was a storm on the sea and, that, and the apostles were afraid and they woke up the teacher and he said, you took the storm on the outside and you put it on the inside. And as I read that little story of Jesus, I realized I had taken the storm on the outside in this community and I'd put it on the inside and I stopped. I don't have to take your karma. And so the woman who wanted him to be thrown out of the church, she stomped out of here. I never saw her again. And you know, he just was a sweet little old man. And even on his deathbed, I remember going to visit him with Gigi Mejia. And he's close to death. And he says, you know, you're a mighty fine looking lady. And I said, oh, Charlie, you don't change even at the moment of death here. Oh, you're a mighty fine looking lady. So Emerson completely changed. And these seven little things are so profound that we're going to do this in December. He says, trust yourself. 
All that you need for growth and guidance in life is already present inside you. You don't need to take another class. You don't need to seek their validation. It's already there, right there within you. When I was 21 years old, I was living in New York City. I was lost as could be. I graduated from college. Phi Beta Kappa didn't mean diddly squat because I didn't know who I was. And someone sent me a card from California and the card had a quote from a man named Krishnamurti who I'd never heard of. And it said, in oneself lies the whole world. And if you know how to look and to learn, then the door is there and the key is in your hand, but no one gives you that key or the door to open except yourself. Well, at that young age of 21, I realized that I needed to look within. I needed to discover who I was. And you know what I discovered, Miss Ashley? I had all these tapes in my head that weren't my thoughts, that weren't my beliefs. They were largely my parents' beliefs. And I had to let them go in order to discover who I was. Trust yourself, he says, Emerson. He says, your thoughts and actions shape your character and your character determines your destiny. Wow, your character determines your destiny. Um, it was, we had Bernie Siegel. He got an honorary doctorate of religious science when I was in Atlanta. And Bernie Siegel came to speak to us. He wrote Love, Medicine and Miracles. That's what we do in religious science. We give doctorates to people who have life experience that qualifies them to be a doctorate of divinity. And Bernie Siegel, he said, be who you is and not who you ain't. Because if you ain't who you is, you is who you ain't. And if you is who you ain't, well, you ain't who you is. Well, I thought that's worthy of memorizing because it was so profound in the simplicity of it. And Emerson's saying the same thing. Be who you are. Be the unique expression that you are, not somebody else's version of your life. The third thing he says is, nothing outside you can harm you. Circumstances and events don't matter as much as what you do with them. On my Zen calendar, Adam always reminds me that he loves this particular one. It was Ram Das, who said, everything and everyone that you encounter in this lifetime is there for your transformation. So he says, so use it. Use the experience, use the relationship. If it's someone that pushes your buttons, someone, oh, Miss Mary, they're there for your transformation. They're there to show you who you are. And then you go, you bless it all. This too is good, this too is for me, and I demand to see the blessing. Emma Curtis Hopkins. So Emerson was completely transformed. The last little one he said was, the present moment is your point of power because eternity only exists in the eternal now moment. And lastly, the highest revelation is the divinity of the soul within yourself. So he says, seek God within your soul. Well, I think that that's a pretty good place to start, isn't it? Because this Sunday I'm talking about going home to yourself, coming home to yourself, coming home to who you always are, which is this eternal soul. So is it, is it difficult to experience yourself as that vibration of energy? Um, Dr. Ernest Holmes in the Holmes papers, he's, he referenced, one of his teachers was Sri Aurobindo. And Sri Aurobindo talked about the Brahman and the Atman are one. So the Brahman is this universal divine energy and the Atman is the soul, the eternal soul. And we all share, as Emerson would call, the oversoul. And so what if this, this source of all creation moves through its creation and it's all the same? And when we become empty of the local self, well, then we say, it's not me. I don't do anything. Jesus said, I myself do nothing. It's this presence that does everything. So could we know ourselves as that? Well, that sounds kind of sweet, Anastasia. You know where I, I love to dive into some of my teachers? And Swami Satchitananda was one of those teachers, this enlightened man who spoke of God as energy, not as matter, not as form, not as something separate. And in it, it's a beautiful metaphorical way to discover so here's what Swami Sachitananda said. 
He said, the current of love is the same everywhere in the universe. It is the cosmic current and there is only one generating station. <laughs> it sends energy to us without wires and we are all different gadgets in the world feeding off of the same cosmic energy of divine love, of pure awareness, of creative impulse. Well, is that too vast for you? Well, let me dive in a little deeper to Swami Satchitananda. He says, some gadgets make better use of their power than others. <laughs> and uh, he says, he does this little metaphor over here. He says, the sun smiled and said, that's my nature. If anybody opens the door, I just walk in. I don't need their invitations. You can't push me out. You can't even invite me in. All you have to do is open the doorway of your soul and lo, I am there. I don't wait for your invitation and I'm not offended by your scolding. All I needed is an open door and guess what? You can't stop me. So what if what is that open door in your life? Is it the willingness to, um, we just finished uh, Ajashanti's book called The Direct Way. And he says, all you need on the spiritual path is the earnestness of heart. So what if your heart is open and earnest? I am opening, I am opening, my heart is ready to receive. And then what if you receive an impulse of divine love and it begins to expand within that field of awareness? Jody reminded me, you love this, Sherry. She sent me a photograph of Humphrey. Today was the 10th anniversary she rescued him from the pound. Now, if I had been in charge, I never would have picked out the pug. But because the pug showed up through divine grace and when Jody put him in my arms and this neurotic little pug was there as the destiny of my soul. Now he sleeps with me. He's, um, and it's something I wouldn't have chosen. So what if that energy, just by opening to it, it comes in its many weird disguises and it's all divinely appointed. Sweet Adam stopped by the other night and he's, um, he's got a ministry. It's called uh, the Flower Rescue Flower rescue? Well, you know, they throw the flowers out at Target and he rescues them just like, and it's a, a beautiful expression of divine love. And he showed up on his anniversary and it was so sweet. He gave me a big bouquet of flowers. As you give, so shall you reap. And I went to his lovely wife in the car and she was glowing. And I said to her, because I say this on all my wedding ceremonies, divine love brings together and maintains together those who belong together. So when you realize that divine love is in charge, that divine love did all of this, divine love brought me to Alabama. Divine love brought me to my husband of 50 years. After I said to the universe, he's the only one, anybody but him. I've been with him for 50 years. I said, I'll go anywhere but Alabama. I've been here for 33 years. So obviously I don't have a clue. This something that's greater does. Could I defer to its wisdom? I was reading that, this uh, treatise on the Tao Te Ching and they talk about the yin-yang and the masculine part, you might say the yin or the yang is the, is the assertive energy. It's that part of us that wants knowledge and uh, to expand our understanding of things. But the yin is where the wisdom comes through and that's where the heart is revealed. Ajashanti in his simplistic 30 ways to directly connect to the universe is one of them is just to lead with your heart. He says, because the heart knows oneness, whereas the head might want to get duplicitous, so this is right or this is wrong. But when you lead with the heart, and then and even Ernest Holmes says, let love lead the way and let the law make the way possible. So what would your life look like if love led the way? 
I pulled out my book on non-duality, conversations with some of the great minds on the planet. Now, non-dual means that there aren't two. There's only one. You know, it's the one life. And the one life wakes up, however the one life wakes up. And none of us knows how it's going to wake up. You know, um, Richard Rohr, one of my teachers, he's a Franciscan monk who awoke to the truth of his being, even within the Catholic Church. And his latest book is called The Universal Christ. And he says the universal Christ existed on planet Earth way back before the dinosaurs existed. It's a state of consciousness. And he said now, more imperative than ever, the universal Christ has to awaken within on the planet. It's the one presence, the awakened one, coming from divine love. And so these are all different people who awoke in their own unique way. And so I'm talking about coming home to yourself. What if coming home to ourselves isn't going to look the way you think it's going to look? This is Jeff Foster, and he's the young man that I studied with. Um, my breakthrough took place on March 12th, uh, three years ago, four years ago. It was my, I was 69 years old, and I had a heart attack. It was um, a Monday morning. Trey and I were supposed to head out to Florida on a vacation, and I woke up, and there was a pain behind my shoulder blades, and I thought, I'll just do some yoga stretches, and it didn't go away, and then there was nausea, and so I called someone from the church. I said, I've got pain in my back. And she said, you're having a heart attack. So I called a doctor. And the doctor said in the church, she said, oh, just get a good dump. You'll be fine. Well, I'd already had the dump, and I wasn't feeling fine. So I went to my sweet husband. I said, I think something's wrong. And he says, you're not going to ruin another vacation for us, are you? And so I literally fell on the bed on top of baby's back. And I said, let's just stop at the emergency room on the way to Florida so I can make sure this is nothing more than gas or something. So he said, well, let's walk the dogs first. And I said, why don't you walk the dogs? I'll go in. By the time you get back from walking the dogs, they'll tell me I'm okay. So I go into the emergency room at 6 in the morning. I collapse at the desk as they're trying to have me fill out the forms. And the next thing I know, they're taking off my clothes as I'm being gurneyed down the thing. And um, I'm wearing the same socks I'm wearing today. I guess that's why Susan had given me these socks. And they said, what's with them socks? I said, well, they're my vacation. Good luck, socks. And they said, where is this husband of yours? I said, he's out walking the dog. And so he's out there and the phone rings and he says, where are you? He said, I'm walking the dogs, who are you? And they said, well, this is the emergency room. Your husband's having a procedure. Well, the good news was I did live. And um, I had planned a spiritual retreat a week later. And the cardiologist said, you can go on the spiritual retreat if you take your nitroglycerin with you. So with my nitroglycerin, I went on the spiritual retreat and it was Jeff Foster that was there the young man I'm gonna share with you. He had his coming home to his true self by almost killing himself from suicide because his life was so miserable. And so he talks about when you come home to yourself. And so when I went to this trip to Colorado, uh, I came there with my wounded little boy. He showed up and he was six, seven, eight years old. I'm not sure how old, but he literally fled from the retreat and he went out and he, he held on to the trees and he started having a conversation. And so I learned going to the spiritual, I was coming home to my, my wonder child. And it's so funny, um, John Bradshaw wrote a book called Homecoming. It's quite a famous book in the therapy groups because he recognizes that in order to come home to yourself, when you do, you're gonna find that you're gonna meet all those parts of you that are unhealed your wounded child, but underneath all of them, at the very end of the book, you come to what they call the wonder child. And I went to all the way to Colorado to meet my wonder child. I was coming home to him. And what he said to me was, 
You, you abandoned me 60 years ago. Don't abandon me now. So what if this child of wonder is the part of us that we come home to? So this will give you a taste of Jeff Foster, this beautiful young soul. He says, the spiritual search is really a search for oneness. The search for completion, the search for unity, to know that we're one with everything. The Chinook Indians would say to the tree, teach me and show me the way to the mountain. Teach me and show me the way to the river. Teach me and show me the way, not as something separate, but as a part of my own self. So the search is for oneness. Ernest Holmes and the science of mind in all capital letters, one, one, one. If we teach anything, we teach oneness. Well, you can't teach it. You have to embody it. Jeff Foster embodies it. So he said this, it's the search for completion. It's the search for home. Today we're going home. And he says, what I try to communicate is that you never left home in the first place. <laughs> that oneness is all there is, and it's here, and it's now, and we're not separate from it. And in the seeing of that, well, then the whole search for something more falls away. There is no more in oneness. There was a young minister. He went out and had lunch one Sunday, and he said, I just want more. I just want more, David. And I said, well, in oneness, there is no more. He sent me a tie that same afternoon. Something woke up. So what if we stopped looking for more and we started to embrace what life is giving us in this holy instant? That this too is God. This too is grace. This too is for me. My beloved Adam was saying the journey is the goal. And sometimes the journey is uncomfortable. I mean, poor Jeff Foster said it took me almost to the, the throes of suicide. It was either suicide or live. And he said, I chose to live. But I chose to live with my life by embracing the allness of it. And he wrote this book called The Deepest Acceptance to accept the all of us, not just the perfect part of us. I used to think I had to be perfect to be acceptable in God's eyes. Now I know that God loves her flawed children. So Jeff Foster coined a phrase. He says, God gives a dirty love. And this shocks people. And he says, by dirty, I mean God loves you when you're lost, when you're down on your knees, when, you've, when you have nowhere to go. That's when God loves you the most. Not when you're the perfect little so-and-so who's done everything that you should do. No, no. Give me your vulnerability. Give me your tears. Give me your broken heart. God loves you when your heart is broken. So he goes on to say this. It's the search for home. And um, he says, the me at the center of my life is seen to be an illusion. And then life is seen to have no center because you don't have me as the center. It's not coming from me. His little article is called Life Without a Center. Well, who would you be if, if there wasn't a me running the show? Wayne Dyer, you know, since he made his transition, he's been coming through a woman in a channeled work. And it's a book that someone gave me recently. It's called The We Consciousness. He says you move out of, out of the me consciousness into the we consciousness. Whoa, there's something to ponder, isn't it? Ponderloo. That's my dog, Bert. He comes through me every now and then, but you can always tell he comes up and this is void. Allow for what is, he says, but it's not something that you are doing. That's the hardest thing for most of us to hear. To live with what is, but in order to do that, there's no you doing it. And he says, most people don't want it. What do you mean there's no me doing it? You just told me to live with what is, and I'm doing that. But there is no you as the doer. I of myself am nothing, Jesus said. It's this presence that does the work. So he's trying to get us to the same place in his own sweet way. He said, it all becomes very playful. I get to play at being Jeff Foster. I get to play at being David Leonard. 
or you could call me Reverend Dr. David Leonard if you think I'm important, Sherry. But basically, it's just a little goofball up here who's open to this divine guidance. And then you say, who am I? That's the great question, who am I? Am I the local self? Or am I this infinite presence that lies stretched in smiling repose? And it's a game I get to play at being a minister in Huntsville, Alabama. I get to play at being married to a man for 50 years with a one-eyed pug who's as sweet as pumpkin pie. Okay, so he says, it's a collapse back into what there already was. It's always been here, but you just couldn't see it. We couldn't see what was there right in front of us. Adyashanti says, it's always already there. It's not something you acquire by getting your ministerial license at Holmes Institute. No, it was always already there. It's not something you acquire. Huh, well, then I think it's a moment to stop and go within. Well, what's always already there? Well, I think love's always already there, isn't it, Miss Susan? It's a love that's greater than the local self. Well, I think love exists before we exist. What do you think? You get to play with that. Ponder the imponderable. Play with that one. Mm. Jeff Foster kind of gets me excited. It's a collapse back into what's already what was already there. And then he goes on to say, but what's seen in clarity is that there is only now, there is only this. Life was seen from a different point of view. He says, babies always see this. Newborn babies see this because they're lost in oneness. They don't know they're separate. Whoa, the babies know it? And he goes, he says, I feel connected. I feel at one with everything. That's what the baby would say. There are no mistakes in oneness. The game has to play itself out. It's like suffering and separation are there to wake us up. Well, they're not bad things then, are they? You know, his, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a book called The Art of Living and uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said he should have called it The Art of Suffering because he says only when you know how to suffer well can you live well. And so here Jeff Foster saying it's the suffering that woke us up. It was so painful. You know, there's a beautiful, Anis Nin says, when the pain to stay held tight like a bud is so intense that the pain is greater to stay like this than it is to open, well, then you'll open. So maybe it's too painful to stay in a religion that insults you and oppresses you and condemns you. And it has to be that way in order for you to step out of that and to find a spirituality that is of the soul. This is the last job I thought I would ever do. I said, religion is the opiate of the people. Being condemned in the Christian church as a gay man, I thought I want nothing to do with that. And yet then I found a religious science church who were <laughs> reminding me that I create my own reality. And then when the mystical part started falling in line, that there was this something, and that's where Emerson was so powerful. There is that stream whose source is hidden. And I was accessing that. And when I did my master's thesis on dance, I, was, I fell right into the same place. There was this creative something that was coming through. And so my master's thesis was on the anatomy of inspiration. Where does the inspiration come from? It comes from that place that it all comes from, that Jeff Foster's pointing toward. Oh my God, there's a non-dual reality that's bigger than me. Wow, just open the window and there it comes. I don't even have to invite it. Just open. Could we open to that something? The last thing. It, it will either transform my life. Oh, here he said, we've all tasted this innocence of that beautiful child, the lack of solidity, that openness, that sense of being anything, of not being anything in particular. And essentially that innocence of a newborn, that freshness, that openness hasn't been lost. 
It's just become obscured by our seeking game, apparently, by the game of being a separate person, a person that's separate from the world. And it's out of that illusion or that assumption that all of our suffering begins, that we're separate from one another. And when you open that empathic heart, you can feel the suffering of, of everything. You know, it's all you. He says, it was either my life boiled down to this transformational moment. He said it was either transform or commit suicide. There was no other option for me. And he said, yes, I chose change over suicide. And what did he change? He chose to love himself, to accept himself, to find that part of him that wasn't flawed, that wasn't trying to win the world's approval, that didn't need a million different degrees to be acceptable to his family. He found that vulnerable, innocent self by, in a way, dying to the old idea of himself so that this more advanced self could come through. Whoa, you mean that's what coming home is, Al? That something is, I'm, I'm exploring um, John O'Donohue this month in his book of blessings. And uh, he did this one little blessing that I'm trying to commit to memory and I'm gonna pass it on to you as, as a way of coming home. And he says, may all your unforgiveness be released. Say that with me. May all your unforgiveness be released. Now let's make it personal. May all my unforgiveness be released. Say that with me. May all my unforgiveness be released. You can't be free until you have forgiven. Then he says this one. He says, may your fears yield their deepest tranquilities. May your fears yield their deepest tranquilities. We're not pushing the fear away anymore. One more time. May your fears yield their deepest tranquilities. And now let's make it personal to ourselves. May my fears yield their deepest tranquilities. I have a sense of tranquility now after this election for some reason. I don't know what that could possibly be. And the last one is, may all that is unlived within you blossom in the future graced in love. May all that is unlived within you blossom in the future graced with love. May all that is unlived within you blossom in the future graced with love. Now we've conferred that on the world, let's do it to ourselves. May all that is within me blossom in the future, graced with love. Oh, doesn't that feel nice? So Jody, you wanna ring the bell and we'll take the mindfulness bell into a, a closing. Ernest Hemingway asked the question, for whom the bell tolls? And then he responded, the bell tolls for thee. And so with a simple act of the ringing of a bell, we stop the narrative because the only thing that really separates us is a story. And when we let go of the story of me, well then, what is left? Mooney uh, the Pooh would call it the empty block the part of us that is free of narrative and open-hearted awareness. It isn't bound by a story, an opinion, a conclusion. 
And when all that falls away, well then, what is left? I rest in that question, not having to find an answer. When we let go of the finite self, Emerson says it's the finite self that wails and suffers. He says, but simultaneously, there is this infinite presence that lies stretched in smiling repose. And so I'm inviting you to return to that infinite presence that's everywhere revealing itself and touch it within your own being. It's the one life longing to be revealed, but it requires our consent. The Agape Church has a song they sing, Use me, O God, I stand for you, and here I'll abide as you show me all that I must do. And so as we put ourselves in a receptive mode to be in service to this something that is greater than we are, well, then we can live in wonder as we've resurrected that wonder child within us who marvels at the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. Uh, who marvels at how a soul can flower within our being and express a beauty that's beyond words. And then you can say, I am beautiful, you are beautiful, the whole existing universe is beautiful. Ugliness is merely a manifestation of unhappiness. And so we begin to discover by going home to that still point within ourselves, a beauty that is divinely mm, expressing. So we let it. We let it unfold itself through us. Let it sing through us. Let it express through us. Let it love through us. Let it mm, let it accept what is. In oneness, nothing is ever mm, rejected. And so when those unhealed parts come up to us, let's put our arms around them metaphorically. I remember sitting at the foot of my Sufi teacher he said, if you only knew how much you are loved. And in that holy instant, I felt a love so expansive that I thought my heart was going to break. And so all we need to do is open, like the window opening to the energy of divine love. And maybe you'll see the face of a baby. And maybe you'll see the face of a pug. And maybe you'll mm, feel nothing, no thing, and in that feel everything. It was Nasargadatta that says, when I know I'm nothing, wisdom flowers. And when I know that I'm everything, well, then love awakens. So we come home to a place that always already exists within us and all around us. Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven. He said it's within us and it's all around us, but we don't see it because we've gotten distracted by our story, by the idea of me, and there is no me.
until we stop and smile. Let's come together in the heart salutation. If you would place your hand over your heart, the one heart, the one life, and let's say together, I honor you. I respect you. I love you. May all the unforgiveness in my life be released. May all my fears yield their deepest tranquilities. May all that is unlived in me blossom in the future, graced in love. Blossom in the future, graced with love. Accepting it is already so. I take the next step. Cheerful expectancy. And a sense of humor. And all is well. And so it is. So thank you for coming. Welcome, Colorado. Our dear friends from Colorado. So good to see you, old friends. It's been a while. to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.cslhuntsville.org.